I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 16 will be in verses 19 through 31. Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31. This is a message I've entitled Sola Scriptura, Scripture Alone. Sola Scriptura. Luke 16, beginning in verse 19. I'll read the passage, and then we will work our way back through it. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which are falling from the rich man's table, besides even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame." But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us." And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, even if someone were to rise from the dead. May God bless the reading of his word. This is not a warm, fuzzy passage of scripture. This is not uh, something that you're going to read about in Chicken Soup for the Soul or some other little meaningless ditty like that. Uh, very, uh, in very real ways, this is a very graphic passage of Scripture. It is jarring. It is disturbing. But I trust as we work our way through this text, we will see that it is also a very encouraging passage of Scripture for us as believers. And there is some debate as to exactly what this is, the account that we refer to as the rich man and Lazarus. Is this a real event in history uh, was the rich man a real individual, Lazarus real individual, real event that actually happened and transpired in history, or is this a parable that Jesus told? And there's some evidence for both views. Uh, it is situated amongst other parables that Jesus taught, so that lends evidence that this is indeed a parable. If it is a parable, however, it is unlike any of Jesus' other parables. Because here Jesus gives us specific names. He doesn't do that in any of his other parables, but he does here. He names Lazarus. He names Moses. He gives us specific names, names Abraham. So if it is a parable, it is unlike any of Jesus' other parables. And I believe that the inclusion of these specific names is very purposeful, very intentional, because Jesus is driving home to us the very stark realities of what happens to someone when he or she dies outside of Christ. Now let me give you a little bit of context here to kind of set the scene. Uh, turn back with me probably just one page or so in your Bible to Luke chapter 15. I want you to see how Luke chapter 15 opens. In verse 1 it says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then Jesus began to teach in parables. So as chapter 15 opens, we see a large group of people that had gathered around Christ. 
scribes, Pharisees, tax collectors, sinners of every stripe. So a large group of people had gathered around Jesus to listen to him as chapter 15 opens. But then look at verse 1 of chapter 16. It says, now he, Jesus, was also saying to the disciples. So as chapter 15 opens, a large group of people had gathered around Christ. But as chapter 16 opens, Jesus turns his attention away from the crowd and he begins to address only his disciples. He's no longer talking to the scribes and the Pharisees and the tax collectors and the sinners of every stripe. Now he's addressing only his disciples. But notice verse 14. It says, Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of what? Money, were listening to all of these things and were scoffing at him. So even though Jesus had turned his attention away from the crowd and now is addressing only his disciples, notice who never left the scene. The Pharisees were still there hanging around in the background, eavesdropping, if you will, on what Jesus was saying. They never left the scene. And notice that the Bible says that Pharisees were lovers of money. And so what Jesus is about to teach here would have absolutely scandalized the Pharisees. So let's work our way back through this text. Verse 19 says, now there was a rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. The picture here is one of extreme opulence. This was a very wealthy man. Uh, purple was a difficult color to manufacture 2,000 years ago. No big deal today, of course, but 2,000 years ago, different story. Uh, purple was actually derived from the oil of snails so it was a very labor-intensive color to manufacture back then. And so if a man had a garment, a whole garment that was colored purple, then he was a man of means. He had wealth. But notice the text says that this man, this rich man, habitually dressed in purple and fine linen joyously living in splendor every day. So apparently this guy not only had a single garment colored purple, he had a whole wardrobe full of purple garments, fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. This guy had arrived. This guy, he was the Elon Musk of the ancient world. He had everything that the world could offer. Fancy clothes, undoubtedly a palatial home, servants at his beck and call, waiting on him hand and foot. This guy had everything that the world could possibly offer. Extreme opulence. There was another man. Verse 20. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table besides even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. The picture here is the exact opposite. The rich man had everything that the world could offer. Lazarus had nothing. Notice that the poor man named Lazarus was laid at the rich man's gate. Lazarus didn't go there on his own. He was laid there. Lazarus was crippled. He couldn't even move about on his own. He was picked up, carried, and laid at the rich man's gate. And wherever Lazarus was laid, that's where Lazarus stayed. He couldn't move. Laid at the rich man's gate. Covered with sores. Open, oozing, infected, diseased sores covering his skin, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Lazarus was poor, he was crippled, he was diseased, and he was starving. Undoubtedly, Lazarus looked like a skeleton with skin draped over it, diseased skin at that. This is a graphic picture. And then, as if it couldn't get any worse, 
Notice that the text says, besides even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. And friends, when we read dogs in the New Testament, we shouldn't think about some little happy cocker spaniel. This wasn't a little Maltese. This wasn't a little frou-frou dog with a little bow in his hair. These weren't pets. These were wild dogs. And they were licking Lazarus not to comfort him, but to torment him. He couldn't get away from them. He was crippled. This is a graphic, disturbing, jarring description. Notice that we don't know the name of the rich man. It's unnamed. But we do know the name of the poor man, Lazarus. I believe that's intentional because Lazarus's name is derived from the name Eleazar, which literally means God helps. That's what Lazarus means, God helps. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you think that uh, God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. It's not. A lot of people think that it is. Uh, Bill O'Reilly, I was watching him several years ago, and he was talking to some Catholic priest. And he said, well, my, my favorite Bible verse is God helps those who help themselves. Not only is that not in the Bible, it's not even a biblical concept. Friends, God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who understand that they cannot help themselves. Lazarus could do nothing for himself physically. Lazarus was completely dependent upon the mercies of others. He could do nothing for himself. And just as helpless as Lazarus was physically, you and I are that helpless spiritually. There is nothing that we can do for ourselves. There is nothing that we can do to ingratiate ourselves to our thrice holy God. So many people today think that they can somehow earn their way into heaven. They think that they are basically good people. And I guarantee you, if you were to go out on the streets and interview, ask 100 people at random, are you a good person? I guarantee you 99 out of 100 of them, at least, if not 100, would say, well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a good person. Almost everyone thinks they're good. Because what we tend to do is we tend to evaluate our goodness by comparing us to other people. But friends, God does not evaluate our goodness by comparing us to other people. He evaluates our goodness by comparing us to himself. And there is none of us who is good. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God, Romans chapter 3. No one is good. There is only one who is good, and that is God. All of us are sinners. God's standard of goodness is perfection. Only He is good. The rest of us are bad. You're a bad person. You are a bad person. I'm a bad person. Go through God's standard of goodness, the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not lie. Have you ever told a lie? The answer to that question is yes, of course you have. So have I. Let God be true and every man a liar. We've all told lies. If you've ever told a lie, you're a liar. You're a liar, I'm a liar. Thou shalt not steal. If you've ever taken something that does not belong to you, you're a thief. It doesn't matter what you've taken. The value of it is irrelevant. We're liars. We're thieves. We're blasphemers. We have blasphemed God's name in word and in deed. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Don't let yourself off the hook too quickly. Jesus says if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery already in your heart. If you have ever looked at another person with lust, you're an adulterer. Go through the Ten Commandments. Dear friends, we have all broken God's laws thousands of times. And just like when we break laws on earth, there's a penalty to be paid, how much more so when we break the laws of God. But because we have sinned against God who is eternal, the punishment of that sin is also eternal. And if we die in our sin, we will very rightly and very justly 
go to a very real place that the Bible calls hell, where the worm will not die, the fire will not be quenched. That's the bad news. That's what your sins have earned you. That's what my sins have earned me. The wages of sin is death. And there is no amount of good works that we can do to overcome the debt that our sins have incurred against our eternal God. You cannot help enough little old ladies across the street. You can't work enough hours at the soup kitchen. There is nothing you can do. There's nothing I can do to earn our favor with God. The Bible says that our works are as filthy rags, Isaiah chapter 64, filthy rags before a thrice holy God. There is nothing that we can do to help ourselves. Lazarus was completely helpless physically. You and I are that helpless spiritually. The, the verse continues, verse 22. Now, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Death is the great equalizer. Dear friends, it does not matter how much you have or how little you have. It does not matter who you know or who knows you. It does not matter on which side of the tracks you were raised. Death is an appointment that we will all one day meet. Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed man once to die and then the judgment. Death is coming for each and every single one of us. Ain't none of us getting out of this thing alive. Death is coming for all of us. Now, no big surprise when the poor man died, right? Lazarus, no big surprise. He was at death's door anyway. He was poor, he was crippled, couldn't even move on his own, starving, diseased, tormented by wild animals. No big surprise when Lazarus died. But apparently, reading between the lines a little bit, the rich man apparently died at about the same time. Undoubtedly, death came as quite the surprise to the rich man because life was good. I mean, he was habitually dressing in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. Life was good for the rich man, but death came for him too. Dear friends, death is coming for each and every one of us. And sometimes that appointment may come at the most unexpected of times. Not a single person within the hearing of my voice right now is guaranteed to see tomorrow morning sunrise. Not a one of us. We don't have that guarantee. Death is coming. It's an appointment that you'll meet. We must be ready for it when that appointment comes. Now, undoubtedly when the rich man died, he had a very nice funeral. Probably a lot of important people had gathered for his funeral. His body undoubtedly was very well cared for, was wrapped in some very nice linens and anointed with various oils and spices and uh, laid in a very nice ornate tomb that only the wealthy in that day and age could afford. Uh, undoubtedly, the rich man had a very nice funeral. Probably a lot of pomp and circumstance there with his funeral. But Lazarus, Lazarus had no such funeral. Undoubtedly, what happened to Lazarus's body when he died is the same thing that happened to all of the bodies of the poor and the diseased who died in that day and age. His body was just simply picked up and carried outside of the city gates and dumped to be consumed either by wild animals or fire or a combination of those things. No fancy funeral for Lazarus. No important people there at Lazarus's funeral. No flowery speeches were made over Lazarus's body. But notice in the text, notice who his pallbearers were. It says that he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. You know what, dear ones? One of these days when I die, I don't really care what kind of funeral I have. I really don't. I don't care what is said about me. 
The only thing that I would ask at my funeral is that the gospel be preached. Beyond that, I don't care. But you know what? I want these pallbearers. I want to be carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. I want those pallbearers. And I want to hear those words one day, well done, good and faithful, doulos, slave, well done. Dear friends, you want to have these pallbearers. You want to be carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the only way to have these pallbearers is to repent of sin and place your trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot save yourself. Lay your works down. You're dead in trespasses and sins apart from Christ. But God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. And Jesus was the God-man, one person with two natures. And this perfect person offered His perfect life as a perfect sacrifice to perfectly satisfy the perfect wrath of God died on the cross three days later, bodily raised from the dead, proving himself to be who he said he was, God in human flesh. And if you will repent of sin, turn from your sin, and place your trust in Christ and what he did on the cross, you will be saved. You will pass from death to life. And then one day, when your Hebrews 9.27 time comes, when your appointment with death comes, one day, you too will be carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And you too will hear those words, well done, good and faithful slave. You want these pallbearers. Verse 23, In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Verse 24 is a condemning verse for the rich man. Sometimes I wonder if we really believe what we say we believe about what happens to someone when he dies outside of Christ. Do we really believe what we say we believe that when people die in their sin, that they go to this place that the Bible calls hell. Hades here will become hell with a capital H, Revelation 21. The lake of fire, where the worm will not die, the fire will not be quenched. There will be wailing, weeping, gnashing of teeth. I've heard so many preachers say, and I'm sure you've heard it too, well, if you, if you die in your sins apart from Christ, you'll be eternally separated from God. That's not entirely true. That's not entirely true. Do you know what the most terrifying thing about hell is? God. Because He's there. He is there in His wrath. Read Revelation chapter 14, verses 9, 10, and 11. It says that those in the lake of fire, says they will be tormented day and night in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, Christ. He's there. He is there in His wrath. Now, people in hell are separated from God relationally. There is no relationship there. There is no love exchange there. There is no fellowship there. They are cut off from God relationally. But judicially, people in hell are in the presence of God, judicially, in His wrath, as the full undiluted fury of God's wrath will be poured out day and night, forever and ever, and it will never end. Sometimes I wonder, do we really believe what we say we believe about what happens to people when they die outside of Christ? Do we really believe that they go to this place?
And if we do, why are we not out there more in the highways and the hedges telling people how to escape this place? How much do you have to hate someone to believe that that person is on his or her way to hell and know the truth, but don't tell them how to escape it? Now, I'm not saying we should never miss an opportunity. I mean, we should never miss, but we do. Look, I'm an evangelist. This is what I do. I miss opportunities to share the gospel. I'm not perfect. But by God's grace, I do try to share the gospel with people on a regular basis out in the highways and the hedges, whether I'm in the airports or, or wherever. Just I do try to do that. And I worry about people who call themselves Christians and yet seemingly have no unction within them to share the gospel. Do we really believe what we say we believe about what happens to people? Do we really believe it? And if we do, why are we not telling people how to escape this place? When I think about hell, my circuit breakers trip. I, I can't comprehend it. Do we really believe it? Notice too, in verse 24, the address that the rich man gives. He somehow has this ability to see across this great chasm and he sees across it and he sees Abraham, recognizes him, calls him by name. He says, Father Abraham, gives him a title of respect, Father, Father Abraham. Father Abraham? Whoa, wait a minute. That, so the rich man recognized Abraham, knew him by name, gave him a title of respect? What does that tell us? That tells us that this was a religious man. This was not some atheist. This was not some guy who works for People for the American Way, some atheist organization. This was a religious man. This was a man who had been taught the scriptures. This was a man who had a head full of knowledge of the word of God. He was very religious. He knew the scriptures. What's he doing in hell? Dear friends, I am the first one in my ministry. I champion the study of scripture, the study of doctrine and theology. Study doctrine, study theology, study the word of God, study the attributes of God. Fill your mind with scripture. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, as Paul said to the Colossians. Study these things, absolutely. But make sure in your studying Make sure that your head knowledge has penetrated your heart. There's a lot of people out there who have a head full of knowledge. They know scripture, but that head knowledge has not penetrated their heart. There's going to be a lot of theologians in hell. There's going to be a lot of pastors in hell. Make sure your head knowledge has penetrated your heart. It had not penetrated the rich man's heart. How do we know that? Because not only did he recognize Abraham, who else did he recognize? Who else did he call by name? Lazarus. Lazarus. It's not that the rich man didn't know that Lazarus had been laid at his gate. Oh, he knew it. Not only did he know it, he even knew his name. He even knew his name. The rich man would not lift his finger to help Lazarus on earth, but now you see, now that everything has been reversed, now the rich man wants Lazarus to lift his finger, dip it in water, put it on his tongue. And notice that the fires of hell do not work repentance. Because in verse 24, there's no apology. There's no statement from the rich man, Lazarus, I'm sorry. Lazarus, I'm sorry that I did not help you when we were on earth. Please forgive me, Lazarus. Nothing like that. No apologies. Even now, Lazarus is nothing more than his errand boy. He won't even address him directly. Father Abraham, 
send Lazarus. Even now, he is nothing but condescending towards Lazarus. The fires of hell don't work repentance. This man is as hardened, if not more so, in his sin in hell than he was on earth. He had a head full of knowledge, but that knowledge had not penetrated his heart. The Bible speaks of two different kinds of sorrow over sin, a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And dear friends, the difference between a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow over sin is quite literally the difference between hell and heaven. It is the difference between a false professor of Christ and a true child of God. The Apostle Paul says that a godly sorrow leads to, excuse me, a worldly sorrow leads to death, but a godly sorrow leads to repentance unto salvation. What is a worldly sorrow? A worldly sorrow over sin is nothing more than a guilty conscience. A worldly sorrow over sin says this, what would happen to me if my sin were exposed? What would be the consequences to me? And so we try to cover up our sin, not because we grieve over it, but because we don't want the consequences of it. What would happen to me if my boss knew what I was doing on the side? What would, what would happen to me if it was found out I was cheating on my taxes? Or what would happen to me if my spouse knew who I was talking to on texting or on you know, Facebook or whatever? What would happen to me if my spouse knew what I was looking at on the computer? Does that hit a little close to home? But you see, if we could get away with it, if nobody would know about it, if nobody would know what we're doing on the side, if nobody would know what we're looking at on our phones or on our computer, if nobody would know about it, we'd go right back to it because that's what we really want. That is a worldly sorrow, and Paul says that a worldly sorrow leads to death, eternal death. But then there's this other kind of sorrow over sin, and that is a godly sorrow. What is a godly sorrow? Godly sorrow over sin comes when we grieve over our sin because we understand that our sin grieves God. A godly sorrow is the kind of sorrow that David had in Psalm chapter 51. David had committed horrific sin. He committed adultery, and then he committed murder to cover up his adultery. Remember that? And then Nathan, God sent Nathan to David, and Nathan did for David what a true friend should do, and Nathan confronted David in his sin, pointed his finger at him, and he said, you are the man. And God used that to break David and crush him. And David cried out in Psalm chapter 51, he said, Against you and you alone, O Lord, O Yahweh, have I sinned. My sin is ever before me. You are righteous when you speak. You are blameless when you judge. In other words, David was saying, I'm undone. I have no excuse. A godly sorrow over sin is that sorrow that is vertically oriented when we grieve over our sin because we understand that our sin grieves God. And God has been so good, so kind, so gracious, so patient, so merciful, so faithful to us. And when we sin against Him, it grieves us that we do so. It is not that Christians cannot sin. As Christians, you and I do sin. But here's the difference. A Christian cannot sin and enjoy it. You see, Christians, as Christians, we stumble into sin. We don't swim in it. We don't relish sin. We don't look for opportunities to sin. We don't plan out our sin. As Christians, when we sin, it grieves us. Does your sin grieve you? It is good and it is right to warn people to flee from this place. It is good and it is right to warn people to flee from the wrath to come. But dear friends, just as much as we should want a savior from hell, we should want a savior from our sin. 
there's a lot of people out there that want a savior from hell because they just their conscience convicts them and they know they deserve it and so they just want to get out of hell free card not nearly as many people want a savior from sin if you want a savior from hell but not a savior from sin then you have a savior from neither Verse 26. Or 25, rather. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. The great reversal. On earth, the rich man had everything he could want. Lazarus had nothing. Now everything has been reversed. And it has been reversed for all of eternity. Verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Dear friends, once we die, each and every one of us will go to one of two places, and we will be there for all of eternity. There are no second chances. There is no such thing as purgatory that is a fabrication of the Roman Catholic Church. It does not exist. When we die, we'll go to one of two places and we'll be there for all of eternity. And we're not coming back. We're not making any special visitations to our loved ones. We're going to one of two places and we're there forever. Great chasm fixed. There's no back and forth. Verse 27, and then he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him, notice again, notice the condescension, still no apology. Then I beg you, Father Abraham, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Finally, the rich man is thinking about somebody besides himself, his five brothers. Send Lazarus to my five brothers so that he can warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment when they die. And reading between the lines here a little bit, apparently if Lazarus had gone to his father's house to warn the five brothers, apparently the five brothers would have also recognized Lazarus, so it's not looking real good for the five brothers either. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets had been dead for centuries. How could his five brothers possibly hear Moses and the prophets? This is how. This is how they hear Moses and the prophets. They have Moses. They have the prophets. In other words, they have the scriptures. They have the written word of God. Let them hear them. The rich man said, no, Father Abraham, that, that's not enough. No, Father Abraham, but if, if they could just see someone come back from the dead, then they'll believe, then they'll repent. That'll get their attention. If they could just see a sign and wonder, that'll get a hold of them. Abraham said, if they will not hear Moses, if they will not hear the prophets, neither will they believe even if someone were to come back from the dead. Dear friends, there is an inherent power in this book that is found nowhere else. Not in miracles, not in signs and wonders. And yet we've got this whole swath of professing Christianity, and please do note my use of the term professing Christianity. The Signs and Wonders Movement, the Word of Faith, New Apostolic Reformation Movement, what we'll be looking at tonight, Lord willing. People like Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland and Joel Osteen and Bill Johnson at Bethel Church and Hillsong and all this stuff that, that are into the Signs and Wonders. You know, Health and Wealth Prosperity Gospel. And they think that's the power of God. They claim signs and wonders that God is just doing amazing things in their churches. And they say angel feathers fall out of the sky. 
They get gold dust. There's gold dust just appears on their Bibles and on their clothes, and it's, a, it's the gold from heaven. They claim that, that God is healing people's, oh, well, not healing, but He's turning their tooth fillings into gold. That's a big thing. God's turning people's tooth fillings into gold. Ooh. It's not a sign and wonder. It's, a, it's deception. God's not, if God was going to do that, I mean, honestly, just heal the tooth. I don't care about a gold filling. If you're going to do that, Lord, just heal my stupid tooth. This is deception. And Todd White going around lengthening pe people's legs by about a quarter of an inch. You see this all over YouTube. You know, commanding the short leg to grow. Apparently everybody out there, because Todd White goes out there and he goes up to people at random, and every single person he goes up to apparently has one leg that's about that much shorter than the other one. So apparently the real pandemic out there, forget about COVID, the real pandemic is everybody on the planet apparently is walking around with one leg about that much shorter than the other one. He commands a leg to grow. It's, that's a parlor trick. He's, he's manipulating the, the tilt of the person's foot and the shoe. I mean, it's, it's a parlor trick. It's been exposed. These aren't signs and wonders. This is deception. But they think that's the power of God. It's not the power of God. These are parlor tricks. And then there's this entire other swath of Christianity professing. They're not into the signs and wonders so much, but they're, this is more of the seeker-sensitive approach to doing church. You know, we're going to make church fun. We're going to make church entertaining. We're going to make our church look like the world. And we're going to have the smoke machines and the strobe lights, and we're going to play worldly music uh, maybe with a little Christian twist, but we're going to play worldly music because that's what the world wants after all, and so we need to attract the world and, and draw in the world. And of course, if you draw in worldly people, then you don't want to talk much about doctrine and theology because the world doesn't want to hear that. We're not going to talk much about sin, you know, repentance, because those are kind of Debbie Downers and people don't want to hear that. So we're not going to talk about things like that. We're just going to talk about how Jesus will make your life better. And he'll give you a more uh, fulfilling life and your purpose-driven life and help you to have your best life now and all that. Jesus will, life enhancement, he'll make your life better. And some of these pastors, quote unquote, if you were to ask them, do you believe that the Bible is the word of God? Oh, yeah, sure, sure, we believe that, sure do, yep, yep. No, you don't. No, you don't, because I can tell by how you preach and how you do church that you don't really believe it. Because if you really believe that the Bible is the Word of God, you wouldn't see this need to turn your church into a three-ring circus. And you wouldn't see a need to dilute the gospel. You wouldn't see a need to shy away from things like repentance and sin, righteousness, holy living, taking up the cross. You wouldn't do that if you really believe that the Bible is the Word of God. In every few years, there's some new fad that comes down the evangelical pike that gets everybody all excited for a while. 20, 25 years ago or so, it was a prayer of Jabez. Remember the prayer of Jabez? Everybody was praying, praying the prayer of Jabez. Lord, it's, you know, Lord's my territory, all that kind of stuff. You know, little books and little plaques you can... Pictures you could put on your wall, prayer of Jabez. You know, that was a big thing. Anybody still praying the prayer of Jabez? Of course not. Why not? Because it was a fad. And then it was the, in the early 2000s, it was the Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's movie. That was a big thing, Passion of the Christ. And people are all excited about that. There were reports, oh, people getting healed in the movie theater. Just watching the movie, people were getting healed. And the people are all excited about the Passion of the Christ. And now it's the chosen. People are all excited about the chosen. I hear people, I heard one person say it's the, in reference to the chosen, he said it's the most powerful evangelistic tool of all time. I would submit to you that this book is the most powerful evangelistic tool of all time, not some dopey movie. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
What's the power of God? The gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. You're not going to find the gospel in all these fads. You're not going to find the gospel in the chosen. By the way, I don't know if, how many of you may be watching it, but that scene of uh, John 3.16 in the chosen when Jesus was sitting there with Nicodemus and that after it was over, and it was a train wreck of a scene, but at any rate, when it was over, the Nicodemus character, they stood up, Jesus and Nicodemus, and Nicodemus uh, started to kneel down and worship before Jesus. And Jesus said, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Excuse me? Do what? There's no gospel there. That's a different Jesus. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. Dear friends, you are holding, I hope, in your lap right now, a copy of the most powerful evangelistic tool of all time. It's called the Bible. That's the most powerful evangelistic tool of all time. The scriptures, if they will not hear Moses, if they will not hear the prophets, neither will they believe, even if someone were to come back from the dead. I suppose every uh, preacher has an airplane story and I've been in a lot of airplanes, a lot of airports, and so I've had a number of, a lot of interesting witnessing encounters, but one of them that stands out in my mind, eight or nine years ago or so, I was flying somewhere, I don't even remember where it was now, but um, because of my handicap, they usually let me pre-board, and so I go, I'm usually the first one on the plane, and uh, so I can get my seat and get situated before the other passengers come on. So. This particular flight, my seat was the very last row in the back, in the tail, very last one on the, on the aisle. And uh, so the, the stewardess helped me get my stuff put up in the overhead, my crutches put away and all that. And then right after that, the other passengers start filtering onto the airplane. And uh, I'm just kind of, you know, casually sitting there and I happen to look up the aisle and I see this old man walking down the aisle with a cane He's kind of hunched over in his back. As he got a little closer though, I noticed he was wearing a, a baseball cap, a navy blue baseball cap. And on the front, in big gold letters, WWII Veteran. And, uh, and I've always had a little bit of an interest in history. And uh, so I saw that man and I just said a quick prayer. I said, Lord, please let him sit next to me. Wouldn't you know it? His seat was right next to mine. He had the window seat, and um, so I just slid over so he wouldn't have to you know, crawl over me. And so I just slid over, I took the window, and he sat down in the aisle, and, and I let him get situated and put his stuff up. And, and then I, I introduced myself, and I said, hi, my name is Justin. And he said, hi, Justin, my name is Fred. And I said, well, hi, Mr. Fred, it's nice to meet you. And, so we exchanged a few pleasantries, you know, and um, where are you going, that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, and then after a while I said, well, Mr. Fred, I noticed from your hat you're a World War II veteran. And he said, yes, I am. And I said, well, my grandfather was as well, my mom's dad. I said, um, were you in the Asian or the Pacific, excuse me, Asian or the European theater, Pacific or European theater? And he said, I was in Europe. And I said, okay, well, um, so was my grandfather, and, and uh, I said, what'd you do? And he told me that he was in combat, he was infantry. And, uh, and then he starts telling me about some of the things that he experienced in World War II. Turns out he was in the Battle of the Bulge. And uh, he told me about being in combat, he told me about being in the trenches, the, that they had dug for protection and hearing explosions, mortars going off, bullets zinging over his head. And after a while of that, uh, I said, well, Mr. Fred, did you ever wonder what would have happened to you if one of those bullets had had your name on it, where you would have gone? And he said, yes, Justin, I did. And I said, well, Mr. Fred, you know, one of these days, all of us is gonna die. I said, when that time comes for you, Mr. Fred, do you know where you're going? And he said, no, Justin, I don't. 
And I said, well, Mr. Fred, may I share with you what the Bible has to say about that? And never as long as I live will I forget his response. He said, and I quote, I wish you would. And so for the next, you know, few minutes, I share the gospel with him. I tell him how we are all sinners. We have all broken God's laws. How our sins have earned the wrath of God and there is no amount of good works that we can perform to overcome the debt that we owe to God. I told him about Christ, that God sent his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was fully God, fully man. And Jesus lived a perfect life on this earth to the perfect satisfaction of God. And then Jesus willingly laid down his life on the cross. His life was not taken, he gave it. And on the cross, Jesus bore the penalty that our sins have earned us. He, earned, he bore that penalty himself, died on the cross three days later, bodily raised from the dead, proving himself to be who he said he was, God in human flesh. And I said, Mr. Fred, if you would be willing to repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and place all of your trust in Christ, he will save you. And death is not something that you need to fear anymore if you'll do that. You'll be made a new creature in Christ. And uh, I, I asked him if he had a, any questions, and he did have a couple of questions. I answered those for him. And then he said this to me. He said, he said Justin, I want to thank you for sharing that with me. He said, I've never heard that before. Imagine, I mean, this man at the time was in his mid to late 80s. I've never heard that before. Found out later he was a Roman Catholic. Never hear the gospel in a Roman Catholic church. He said, I want to thank you for sharing that with me. And then, and then the lady in the seat in front of me, she kind of did her head back like this. She leaned back and she said, and she said, and I want to thank you too. I was listening to every word you said. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God.